Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles tonight to Mark chapter 11. I want to teach on uh, uh, one aspect of the subject of faith this evening, specifically developing your measure of faith. The Bible tells us, and, and this is healing school, you might say, well, why are we teaching on faith when this is healing school? Why aren't you teaching on healing? Well, because you can't teach on healing without teaching on faith if you're going to be effective in getting people healed. The Bible tells us in the four Gospels there were 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry. Now, it seems to us like there's more than that because many of the Gospel accounts, um, many of the Gospel writers give us a record of the same accounts. And so it seems like there's more than that, but if you take them all apart and compare them, you'll find out that there were 19 individuals that were healed in the case, uh, 19 individual cases of healing in uh, Jesus' ministry. Now, that does not take into account the multitudes. There were numbers of times where the Bible said Jesus healed the multitudes. And it uh, doesn't take into account the groups like the, the ten lepers, for example, that were healed in Jesus' ministry. But if you take just the individual cases that the Bible gives us record of, there are 19 in the four Gospels. Now, certainly we know there were more people that were healed in Jesus' ministry than that. John said in writing uh, his account, his Gospel account, he said if everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. Well, then we would have to assume that there were more individuals that were healed, more cases of healing that the Holy Ghost could have given us record of, yet the Holy Ghost chose these 19 individual cases, which to me says it provides us an overall and a complete view of the healing ministry of Jesus. There might have been duplicate situations or similar situations and, and that type of thing, but it would have to give us a complete record or else the Holy Ghost did us a disservice by omitting something. I don't believe He did. Do you? Well, therefore... Of these 19 individual cases of healing, if you start taking them apart and you look at the individuals and what happened and how the healings came and how they, uh, the healings were, uh, were produced in their lives and in their bodies and so forth, you'll find out that of those 19, 13 of the 19 individual cases of healing identify specifically that it was the faith of the individual that brought about the healing result. Now, of the other six, two specifically identify or I'm sorry, not specifically identified, but two show action that implies faith in operation. So if you take those two numbers together, 15 out of the 19 cases either specifically speak to the individual's he, uh, faith that brought about the healing or their action implies faith in operation. Well, if Jesus got the majority of people in His ministry healed on their own faith, why would we think we're going to get different results or better results than He did? That says to me that we're going to have to spend some time instructing people, showing them how to build their faith, how to, to, to develop their faith so that they can exercise that faith and get the same healing results that Jesus got. Thank you for coming. Amen? Amen. Well, that's why we want to talk about the subject of faith a little bit. Now, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus gives us what, in my opinion, are the most concise uh, scriptures, the most concise summary of the, of the subject of faith that, that, that exists in all of the Scripture. Now, there are other Scriptures that we can pull out and add to it, but without Mark chapter 11 and the information that it gives us here in the 11th chapter of Mark, we would be hopelessly confused and never understand the, spirit, the subject of faith in the way that we should, in the way that the Holy Ghost wanted us to know. So let's just start there. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse um, 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. He, speaking of Jesus, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever, and his disciples heard it. Now let me stop right there and, and explain a little bit, because sometimes, bless people's hearts, they get so distracted about stuff, they feel sorry for the fig tree. I want you to understand something, folks. God does not waste anything. When Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, He commanded the disciples to gather up the scraps, and there were 12 baskets full. But you can see very clearly, Jesus was not an environmentalist. He cursed the fig tree and didn't con wasn't concerned about Greenpeace showing up and protesting. He cursed a fig tree for a very specific reason. He knew that everything that was created here was created for the benefit of mankind. He knew that because of the condition, that's a little blind to us in the King James, 
But if you know anything about fig trees, if you read anything about that part of the world, here's how fig trees operate in Israel. When the time of the figs comes up, leaves appear. In other words, the figs and the leaves are on at the same time. It's not like we're used to. It's not like spring comes and the leaves come out and then sooner or later the fruit comes. That's not how fig trees produce in Israel. Fig trees produce in Israel where the figs and the leaves show up at the same time. And the figs stay as long as the leaves stay. It's not a matter of once the figs are gone, then the, then the, the leaves are still there and that kind of stuff. That's not how it works. When the, when the time of the figs are there, the leaves are there and the figs are there together. Jesus came to a tree that had leaves but no figs. And so he realized it's an unfruitful tree. And therefore he curses it. Now, folks, I don't think Jesus really cares about trees one way or the other. God made more trees than we can sit under the shade of, so he's not worried about, you know, one certain one. I mean, this is not a rainforest situation. You know, dear Lord, you've got to save the trees. It's, this is not what's going on. Jesus is showing his disciples an example. He knew very well his disciples were right there. He knew they would hear what he said. He knew what the results would be. He knows that this is going to be a teaching experience. And so Jesus curses the tree, showing us that God curses unfruitful circumstances in Jesus' life. Jesus, operating by the authority that he's given as the Son of God, anointed by the Holy Ghost here on the earth to reveal the Father to us, curses the unfruitful circumstance. And you should do the same thing in your life. Notice how Jesus did it. He spoke to the tree. He did not take a knee and pray, Dear God, do something about this tree. Now, folks, that's going to separate a lot of people right there because they're going to think, well, there's no way in the world I'm going to speak to inanimate objects. Well, then don't expect your faith to work. If you're going to follow Jesus' example, you're going to have to answer the circumstances. That's what he's doing. He finds a circumstance of lack, even though it looks like it should be fruitful. He finds a circumstance of lack, and Jesus answers it. Can I ask you a question? What does it mean when he says he answers it? It is the tree. He answers the tree? Did anybody hear the tree speak? How is he answering the tree? He's answering the tree because the tree is unfruitful. The tree is producing nothing of value to him. And Jesus answers the unfruitful, the unproductive circumstance. He speaks to the circumstance. Amen? And what does he say? He says, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Next morning, let's skip over to verse um, 20. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Now, folks, I've used this example before, and I don't know any other way to say it. I hope that it gets the point across. If Jesus, the day before, had taken a chainsaw to the tree, there would still be green leaves on it. It'd be dead but there would still be life in the trunk of the tree that would work its way out through the leaves. Not this tree. It is sitting in the ground just as it was the, the day before, only it is dried up from the roots. In other words, the only thing that I know to compare it to is the tree looks like it had been struck by lightning overnight. There is no green leaf on the tree. There is no sign of life on the tree. It is a tree that looks like it's been dead for a long time. Now think about if you were walking back that, uh, on that road, think about how that would affect you if you saw a, a living, thriving tree, didn't have any fruit on it, didn't have any figs, but it was a living, thriving tree as far as the leaves and the sap and, and whatever caused the, the leaves to be there and, and that kind of stuff, one day, and then the next morning, the thing looks like it's been dead for a year. What would you think? Well, obviously it impacted the disciples because it says Peter... Verse 21, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. Now, I don't know if he's surprised at that or what. I don't know if he's just drawing it to Jesus' attention because Jesus wasn't paying attention. I don't think that's the case. But it doesn't really tell us. There's no emphasis here on this verse where Peter is saying, hey, wow, look. He may be. I think probably he was. Nevertheless, it just says, Peter says, behold, the fig tree which you cursed yesterday is dead. It's withered away. And Jesus answering, I didn't hear a question, but Jesus answered. He must have recognized that this was either an opportunity to teach or there was a question in what Peter is saying. Maybe Peter is saying, look, Jesus, the tree, what happened here? I don't know. Maybe Jesus sensed that he was wondering, how did this work? 
We know this is the tree. Yesterday we saw it. It was alive. You cursed it. We heard it. Now this today, this morning, it's dead. What gives? I don't know. But Jesus answering said, have faith in God. In other words, he identifies first and foremost to Peter, here's how this supernatural event occurred. Have faith in God. Now, there's a lot of different ways that this verse is translated. If you look up the words itself, it can be translated, have faith in God. Another translation says, have the faith of God. Uh, another translation, another rendering is, reckon on God's faithfulness. So there's all kinds of different ways that this can be translated. Jesus is very definitely, without question, however, saying faith is the key to the event. Right? Faith is what caused this to occur. And then he describes what this faith is. For whosoever shall say, for verily I say unto you, that's him saying this is a truth you can count on, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. Well, if he's talking about not doubting in his heart, then he must be talking about believing in his heart, right? But shall believe in his heart, that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now I want you to notice first and foremost, he does not say that I did this because I'm the son of God. He does not say this is some special trick, this is some special ability, this is some special miracle working power that I have that nobody else has because immediately he tells them how to do it. He says have faith in God. I believe a better translation is have the God kind of faith. This is the same kind of faith that God used when he created the worlds. It's the same kind of faith that Jesus used when he commanded sickness and disease to leave people. Where did Jesus get this faith? I'll show you where faith comes from. Faith always comes from God. So real Bible faith is the God kind of faith. It can't be anything else. I think that's the best translation, the best rendering. But have it however you want to. It's still faith. Whatever you want to think about it, faith is the key. And Jesus said, whosoever. That means it's not exclusive to me because I'm the son of God. He said, whosoever shall say. He's saying anybody can work this. Now stop and think about what he's saying. Let's don't go any further without examining this. He's saying anybody can rid their life of unfruitful, unproductive, hindering circumstances. That should be enough to have a running spell right there. What is he saying? Folks, can you think of any problem that is not, does not fall into the category of unproductive, or unfruitful or hindering circumstance. This tree was a hindrance to him to be him being fed. This tree was a symbol of lack. It represented lack. It represented the opposite of what he desired to have, which was figs. And Jesus is saying, this will work for whosoever in anything that's causing hindrance, lack, or non-productivity in your life. I would submit to you that healing is a lack, uh, that, excuse me, that sickness is a lack of healing. So it would work there, wouldn't it? For whosoever, verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. First thing Jesus said is faith is about words. He doesn't even go any further yet. He starts off first and foremost. He says, faith is about words. Where are the words directed? He said, Does he start off by saying, whosoever shall say to God, please get this thing out of my life? No. He says, number one, faith is about words. Number two, those words should be directed at the circumstance. That mountain, that problem, that hindrance, that circumstance that's holding you back or providing an obstacle for the blessing of God in your life. Whosoever shall say to this mountain. What do you say? Wow, you're a big mountain. Man, you're the biggest mountain I've ever seen. Doctor says I'll never get rid of this mountain. Doctor says this mountain will kill me. Doctor says he doesn't know if anybody's ever been healed of this mountain. 
That's what some people do where sickness is concerned. They talk about how big it is. They talk about what, a, what an awesome obstacle it is. About all the people that they know of that's died of this. You know, anytime the doctor diagnoses something serious, you can count on some well-meaning Christian who will come along and tell you how many people have died of that very thing. It'll usually happen within 48 hours. You'll have people call you out of the blue just having you on their heart and tell you about somebody they know that died of the thing that you were just diagnosed with. It never fails. The devil is going to do everything he can to get information to you to give you an opportunity to believe and say that the problem is too big. Notice what Jesus says, however. Jesus said, Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea. How did Jesus do that? Well, what did he say to the tree? He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. The only way, think about it, the only way that could possibly be true is if the tree dies. That's the only possibility. Because next year it might produce fruit. But Jesus said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter. That means the only possible way for that to be accomplished is for the tree to die. Jesus did not stand there and curse the tree and say, dry up from the roots. He could have, but he didn't. You know what this tells me? Jesus didn't worry about the how. Faith, real Bible faith, doesn't worry about how. I, get, I see so many people get caught up in how. They, and, and you can see it. You can spot it. Because people will say, Pastor Mike, I need you to, I need you to pray. Because tomorrow I'm going to go to the doctor. I need you to pray for a good report from the doctor. And, and, and I've been having this symptom, and I want you to pray that my blood pressure goes down. And then I want you to pray after that that my cholesterol goes down. And then I want you to pray after that. Man, I'm worn out before they finish getting, telling me what they want to pray about. Why don't we just pray for healing from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? Let God work it out. I, when we were facing some of our uh, uh, challenges where the building was concerned, we had lawsuits going on every hand. We had bills coming due that we didn't have the money to pay. And, and, and I'm, I'm trying to put out fires. <laughs> Bless my heart. I'm trying to put out this fire over here, pray and, and believe God for this. And I'm running over here trying to pray and believe God about this thing. And then something comes out of the blue and I'm having to pray and believe God about this thing. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, why are you trying to micromanage everything by faith? Now, I've heard of micromanaging in a business context, but I've never heard it in a spiritual context. But that's the question the Lord asked me. Why are you trying to micromanage everything with your faith? I said, Lord, I don't even know what that means. And then he showed me. I'm trying to put out this fire. I'm trying to put out that fire. I'm trying to put out that fire. And he said, what does the Word say? I thought, well, what does the Word say? It says, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. He said, why not just pray that and be done with it? Well, that would be easier. <laughs> Folks, i got to tell you, I started doing just that, not trying to pray for this to work out this way and this to work out that way and this to work out some other way and this, this unexpected thing to come out of nowhere to, to, to work out some other way. I just said, thank you, Father, that all my needs are met according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You know what that did for me? Then when something came out of left field that I wasn't expecting, it's covered. Folks, from that point, I rested, I leaned back. It's almost like I just fell back over in the arms of the Lord. And he took care of it the rest of the way through. Until then, man, I'm working. I'm working. I've got to make, keep my faith working. I've got, did I, my goodness, did I remember to confess for that today? I know I confessed for that, but I worked myself into a frazzle trying to micromanage stuff by my faith. That's not what it's supposed to be, folks. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying faith will bring about supernatural results. It will remove any problem, any circumstance, any obstacle in your life. He said, and faith is about words spoken to the problem. Folks, quit talking about your problem and start talking to your problem. That's what he's saying. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, not about the mountain, Say unto the mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. Now here's the qualifier. He said, now to speak those words effectively, to make them produce results, this is what you're going to have to do on the inside. It's easy to say the words, but the words are going to carry power only if you do the work on the inside. See, when Jesus said to the fruit tree, to the fig tree, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever, he's already prepared. He's prepared so that anything he says, he's going to believe comes to pass. And so he gets results. He doesn't have to stop at the fig tree and say, okay, now wait a minute, how am I supposed to handle this problem? 
oh, yeah, 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 I need, to, I need to get the Word. Let's meditate in the Word overnight, and then we'll come back and deal with this tomorrow. He's ready. He's done the work on the inside. He's done the spiritual work so that he's ready for his words to bring forth supernatural results. You and I might not be ready when we first hear about this subject of faith. So for us, it may take a little bit of time to put the Word of God on the inside of us so that our words carry power. But he tells us how to do it. He said, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and, here's the qualifier, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass, then he'll have whatsoever he saith. He'll have whatsoever he saith. He will have whatsoever he saith. Jesus is very simply saying, if you talk to the problem and keep your heart in the right place, where faith is concerned, you'll have whatever you say. Now, how do you keep your heart in the right place? That's the real key. That's where the real fight of faith comes in. How do you keep your heart in the right place? Well, folks, without proving it from the Bible, and I could take all night long and, and even several other services to show you different scriptures and to prove to you, let me just define what doubt in the heart means. Doubt in the heart means where you speak something contrary to the words that you spoke to the problem before. Doubt in Jesus' heart would have looked like this. He comes upon the fig tree and he says, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And then goes about his business. And later on in the day, he says, You know, the idea that that fig tree is going to die overnight, that's probably not going to work. That would be doubt in his heart. It would be words spoken contrary to the decree that he's already issued. He said it. No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. To believe in his heart, therefore, means he's going to have to stay in agreement. His heart is going to have to stay in agreement. His words are going to have to be such that they cannot contradict what's already been spoken. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. There's not one word said about the mind in verse 23. Not one. What does that mean? That means the mind is not the important element where faith is concerned. Let me say it the way Brother Hagin used to say it. Faith, which is of the heart, the spirit, will work even when there's doubt in your mind. Because faith is a spiritual force, not a mental force. Why then does the devil attack us so much in our thought life? Why does he bring thoughts to us and bring thoughts of doubt to us and, and those types of things? Because he's trying to get you to let your mind influence your words so that your words contradict what you've already said. Because if he can't get you to contradict what you've already said, he can't get you to doubt in your heart. Matthew chapter 12, I think it's verse 35, it says, Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. There's only one way to identify what's in a person's heart, and that is what the words are that are coming out of their mouth. So to not doubt in the heart means to refuse, and sometimes it's a refusal. There are sometimes I have been so sorely tempted, pushed, forced. It's almost like the devil is trying to make me say something contrary to the, uh, to the, the statement of faith that I've made before. That's where the fight of faith comes in. No matter what you see, no matter what you think, no matter what you feel, no matter what's going on around you, no matter how circumstances contradict the statement of faith that we've made, that's where you have to hold steady and make sure that nothing to the contrary comes out of your mouth. Well, if we're not going to believe that, that things contrary to what we've spoken, if Jesus is not going to believe contrary to no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever, what's he going to believe? Very simple. Believe that the things that you say will come to pass. Yeah, but how can I be sure? The Bible says so. Yeah, but what else? I'm sorry, folks. There is no what else. That's it. That's why Bible faith is always based on the Word of God. Yeah, but if I just had some evidence, if the doctor just told me I was getting better, forget it. If you're basing your faith on what the doctor tells you, you're not basing your faith on the Word. Whether the doctor tells you you're getting better or whether the doctor tells you you're getting worse, God's Word does not change. And God's Word is the basis for us speaking, knowing that what we say will come to pass. So Jesus, again, verse 23, He said, For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say, works for anybody, whosoever shall say, faith is about words, 
Whosoever shall say unto the mountain. It's about words spoken to the problem. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And the qualifier, And shall not doubt in his heart. In other words, and again, we could prove it. If we took the time to prove it, we could certainly do so. And I encourage you to just do some studying on the subject. But the simple fact is, the short story is, not doubting in your heart. Refusing to doubt in your heart means you refuse to speak contrary to the words of faith you've already spoken. Folks, faith speaks and maintains its confession. It's just that simple. Why? Because Jesus said... If you believe that your words will come to pass, you'll have what you say. But how can we know? Because the Bible says so. That's it. That's completely it. That's all Jesus did. That's the example. That's the pattern that Jesus followed for the fig tree to dry up from the roots. No fanfare. They didn't hear lightning strike. No lightning bolt from heaven came down with a voice saying, Jesus spoke, therefore this shall be. Nothing like that. Folks, faith is supernatural. It's not always spectacular, but faith is supernatural. Don't discount the supernatural because you don't see something spectacular. Jesus didn't say you'll see spectacular results. He said you'll have what you say. Well, how's that going to work? I don't know. And it doesn't matter. It works. Now, verse 24, Jesus continues to talk about the subject of faith. And he said, therefore, I say unto you. In other words, because you have what you say, here's how it works in prayer. Notice verse 23 doesn't say one word about the mind, doesn't say one word about praying. He's not talking about talking to God. He's not talking about talking to yourself. He's talking about talking to the problem. But verse 24, he speaks of faith working in prayer. The Bible speaks of the prayer of faith. James chapter 5 talks about the sick in the church. And he says, is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over them, the sick, anointing them with oil in the, in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now the word saved there is the word healed. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. You could well understand that being saved from sickness would be to be healed. And the Lord shall raise him up. And then it goes further and it says, and if he's committed sins. See, not all sickness is because somebody sinned. Seldom is that the case. Sometimes, but not really very often. And if they've committed sins, they shall be forgiven. Same prayer of faith that heals the sick forgives sins. So we know that there is such a thing as the prayer of faith, but before that's ever even identified to the church, Jesus tells us how that prayer of faith works in Mark 11, verse 24. He said, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire. Verse 23 was whosoever... Verse 24 is whatsoever. Verse 23 says it'll work for anybody. Verse 24 says it'll work on anything. What things soever you desire. Folks, please notice it does not say whatsoever things you deserve. And it does not say whatsoever things you need. There are different words that Jesus could have used for either of those meanings. He said, what things soever you desire. It occurred to me the other day, and I never really had thought about this very much, but it occurred to me the other day that I hardly ever pray for my desires. I pray for my needs. I claim my needs met, but I hardly ever pray about my desires. And, and, and honestly, I, I, I believe, I don't know how you judge this, but... Uh, um, well, I, you can take my word for this or not. I don't know. But I believe it was the Holy Ghost that brought it to my attention because I really don't ask God for the things that I desire. And it was almost like I, I, I stopped, never really thought about it before, and then thought, well, why don't I ask God for things I desire? And I had to examine myself, had to examine my life, examine my experiences. The, the simple answer is that's the hardest thing I've ever had to believe God for is the things that I want. That's what desires are, aren't they? Wants. It's easy for me to believe God for my needs. But somehow or another, I guess it goes back to my, my religious training, you know, growing up in a denominational church. The idea that God really doesn't want you to have anything that you want. Uh, he'll do what you need sometimes, you know, if he has to. But he really doesn't care that much about the things that you want. And I realize, 
I hardly ever pray about the things that I desire. And even when I do, I can't say that there's any great measure of faith in there. It's kind of like, well, you know, that'd be nice. Did you hear that, Lord? You know? But God cares as much about your wants as he does your needs. One of the, the, one of the most difficult things um, uh, about my upbringing, my relationship with my dad, he and my mom divorced when I was, uh, I think I was 14. I mean, I think I was 14 years old. He and my mom divorced, and, and my dad was kind of in and out. He, wasn't, he didn't come home every night. He'd go out drinking with the guys. He was running around with other women and stuff like that. Honest to goodness, folks, I was 10 or 12 years old, and I didn't know that, that everybody else's dad came home. I didn't know. Don't feel sorry for me because it was a bad situation. I didn't know. We were poor, and I didn't know. I thought everybody ate butter beans four days a week. I didn't know. Now, my mother will deny that, but she cooked, honest to God, she cooked butter beans four days a week. I thought it was because we liked them. I didn't know. So I was oblivious to so many things. But there's one thing that I knew, and that was you couldn't count on my dad. He would promise you the world. And, man, he was this big, he was this big dreamer kind of guy. I mean, if you wanted a little something, he'd say, oh, forget that little something. Let's do something big. And it had never come through. And so you didn't even wind up with the little thing. I can't tell you how many times I asked my dad, could we do this? And he said, oh, well, son, we could, but we don't want to do something like that. Let's do something like this. Let's don't go to the park. Let's go to Disney World. And then you go nowhere. And somehow or another, I mean, it never fazed him. Somehow or another, he thought that making the big promise satisfied everybody and I'm thinking but I didn't get anything and so I learned pretty quick my dad was not to be trusted that hindered me in learning in, in believing God I don't know if it works this way with everybody I've seen some examples and, and, and tried to you know ascertain certain things I'm not sure if everybody it seems to me that they do but I'm not exactly sure if everybody filters their relationship with God through the relationship with their father but I do know this. I know our relationship with our Father is supposed to mirror the relationship we have with God. The reason I know that is because Jesus said, if you know how to be a good Father, how much more shall your heavenly Father? And then mentions several other things. So he's showing that our natural relationship with our Father is supposed to be a picture or an image of our relationship with our heavenly Father. Well, that's great if you've got a good Father. If you don't, that stinks. Because now did, did you not only did I not only learn not to trust my father, now I see things in the Word and I think, well, the Word's got to be true, so it's gotta, God can't lie. It has to be true, but really? And that seems to me to be the number one hindrance why I've never really asked God for, to, for desires. I never really have. But oh, just here lately, the Holy Ghost has started bringing things to me. He started showing me Mark eleven twenty four in a way that I've never seen it before. He started showing me Mark eleven twenty four from desires standpoint. I'm starting to ask God for some things I want. I always, I grew up in a Baptist church. You never were supposed to want anything. It was unspiritual to want anything. I, I, I had no idea. I've carried that around all my life. But I'm getting rid of it. Slowly but surely, I'm getting rid of it. I've started talking to God about some things that I want. I've started talking to God about some things that I desire. And man, that word desire, I can't tell you how much bigger that word desire is getting on the inside of me. What things soever you desire. I can want pretty big. I've, I've learned I can want pretty big. And that doesn't faze God a bit. Now the devil's right there saying, oh, you're just being selfish. Well, what's selfish about Jesus saying whatever you desire? I mean, desire does deal with wants, doesn't it? Not just needs. It does deal with wants. He says, what things soever you desire. Again, verse 23 talks about whosoever. Verse 24 talks about whatsoever. It'll work for anybody, and it'll work on anything. Not just what you need. Not just what you have to have to get by. <laughs> Brother Hagin talked about a, a lady that came to one of his healing services way back when they were having some kind of auditorium meeting a church had rented a, a, a community auditorium type thing and so there were people coming you know churches cooperating all over town with this thing and so this lady came forward and she had uh, let's see how did it work she had a hearing aid and she uh, she had a cane she was limping with a cane and so she came up to the uh, up on the platform where the healing line was you know in this uh, this auditorium like i said uh, opera house type thing 
And so she came up on the platform and Brother Hagin said, what, are you, what did you come for, ma'am? She said, I came so that I could get my hearing back in my ear. He laid hands on it. He said, all right, take that hearing aid out of your ear. He, she took it off. He didn't want to lay hands on it because sometimes those things will buzz and ring and, and that kind of stuff. So he had her take it out of her ear. She had this battery pack, you know, it was one of the old-timey things. She had the battery pack and the, the earplug and, and thing going up there. And so she took it out of her ear. He laid hands on her and instantly her ear opened. And she said, oh, praise God, that's so wonderful. And then she started hobbling off with her cane. And he said, oh, wait a minute, ma'am, come on back. We'll get you healed of that limp. She said, no, I can handle that. I think that might be the way we are sometimes with asking God. It certainly is the way that I was. I need my hearing, but I can, I can, I can live with the limp. That's where I was with the desires. But, oh, that word desire is getting so big on the inside of me. I'm not just looking for needs, man. I'm looking for desires, man. What things soever you desire. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire. When you pray, believe. Everybody say that with me. When you pray, believe. When do you believe? When you pray. Now, that's the key. Because so many times people are looking to believe when they see some kind of change. They're looking to believe when they see a change in the circumstance. They're looking to believe when they see a change in their body. They're looking to believe when the doctor tells them things have changed. They're looking to believe when they feel differently. That's not what Jesus said. That's not the kind of prayer that gets results. He said the kind of prayer that gets results is the prayer that believes when you pray. Believes when you pray. Now, we already know what believe in your heart means. Believe in your heart means to keep your words in agreement and in line with the confession of faith that you make. So he's got to be talking about the same believing in verse 24. He's got to be talking about the same believing that occurs when you pray. Let's read the rest of it. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe. Now what are we supposed to believe? We're supposed to stay consistent in our belief and in our faith. That's what faith does. It stays consistent. Your words have to line up with what you believe in your heart. Your words have to line up with what you pray. Your words have to line up with the confession of faith, the declaration of faith that you first make. Well, what are we supposed to believe when we pray? Believe that you receive them, them meaning whatsoever things you desire. Believe that you receive them, and here's the result. If you do that, here's the result. And you shall have them. So what does that mean? That means you have to believe you have it before you see it. But the Bible says, if you believe it, well, let me use the word that, that the Bible uses. It means you have to believe you receive it in order to have it. Habit speaks of seeing it in the natural. Habit speaks of the circumstances changing, your body changing, your body amending, and so forth. But the Bible says you have to believe you receive it first if you're going to see the change. And so many times people reverse that. They want to see it, and then they'll believe it. And that's not the way it works. It works by believing you receive first, and then having. Folks, how simple is that? Think about it. He didn't say if you go through the 26 steps. He said, here's how it works. What things soever you desire. When you pray, simply believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Believe first and it'll come to pass. Now, Brother Hagin said he operated on this when he was on the sickbed. As a 16-year-old boy, deformed heart, paralyzed, no chance, no hope of getting out of the bed whatsoever from a medical standpoint. He looked at that verse and he said, well, I desire a well body. Easy to understand. But he said it took him nine months after his first prayer to understand the very simple concept that I explained to you, that he had to believe that he receives it first in order to have it. He spent nine months waiting to see his body change. And he said, I rode a roller coaster. He said, some days I'd feel better and I'd think, oh, yeah, it's working. And he said, the next day after that, I'd be down in the dumps because it didn't, nothing changed. He said, I spent days praying. Oh, Lord, I know I prayed this before, but it didn't seem to work because I don't see any difference. So I'm asking you again. And every one of those prayers were prayers of unbelief because his heart wasn't fixed on the answer. The prayer of faith can never be denied, folks, because the heart stays true. I'm saying some things different tonight than I've ever said them. 
I don't know if I'm helping you or not, but I'm doing me a world of good. The prayer of faith can never be denied because the heart stays true. And folks, you can mark it down. Any prayer of faith that is not answered, is not realized, it's not God's fault, it's because the heart wavered. It is comical how many people in the body of Christ say, well, when I get to heaven, I've got some answers, some questions to ask the Lord. Really? I bet He's got a couple for you too. Like, why did you waver? Why didn't you do what the Bible says? Why are you blaming me for the problem when it was right there in front of you and you changed your words and lost it all? I wonder how many things are within reach. I wonder truly how many times people step out and pray according to the Word of God, just simple faith, and it's within reach, but then they change their words. They allow their heart to waver. How do you know? Because their words change from what they originally said. Their words change from their original prayer. And then the answer that's just outside of their reach disappears. I remember, uh, uh, I remember Brother Hagin telling a story about a lady that, uh, that, was, uh, that came to him uh, in a church that he was having a meeting in. And he said, uh, uh, this lady came and, and uh, there was a problem with her legs. And her husband had to carry her everywhere that they went. You know, it was uh, many years ago. And so she had leg braces and stuff, but she was just a little bitty lady. And so it was just easier for her husband to carry her everywhere rather than her trying to, you know, make her way around with the, the wheelchair or, or, or braces. I don't even think they, they had enough money for a wheelchair, if I remember the story right. So anyway, he just carried her everywhere. He'd pick her up, get her up in the morning, help her get dressed, sit her in the chair, and where she needed to, to go to the restroom, he'd, he'd pick her up, carry her to the restroom. If they came to church, he'd carry her in, carry her out, the whole thing. Well, she came uh, to uh, the meeting, and Brother Hagin was laying hands on people one night. And so she came up, and, and uh, her husband carried her, brought her right up. And when Brother Hagin saw him holding her, he said, uh, he said, well, why don't you sit her down there on the front pew, and I'll come to you. So he did. The husband set her down on the the chair and, or the, the pew, and so Brother Hagin went down to the front row and, and, uh, and talked to her a little bit. And he said, now, now, what's the problem? She told him whatever it was, whatever had caused her paralysis. And, uh, and so her husband is right there, and so he, he said, how long has it been this way? And so she told him how many years it had been. And so then he's talking to the husband. He said, I see you carried her. Do you carry her everywhere you go? He said, yeah, I carry her everywhere I go. So you don't have any movement in your legs whatsoever. She said, no, I, if, I, if, if somebody tried to stand me up, unless I'm propped up against something and, and can get the braces to lock, he said, she said, I'd fall flat on the floor. I have no feeling, no movement in my legs whatsoever. He said, well, God can change that. She said, well, Brother Hagin, I, I, I want him to. So Brother Hagin laid hands on her, just very simply, no fanfare, no special anointing, just laid hands on her in, in obedience to the word. Father, the word says that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes, she was healed. So we declare that she's healed from this condition, whatever the paralysis was called. We declare that she's healed in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, her husband's standing there. Brother Hagin takes his hands off of her. He's looking at her a little bit. She's looking at Brother Hagin. She's looking at her legs. Nothing happened. Brother Hagin moved on. Brother Hagin's not the healer. He can't make something happen. All he can do is act in obedience to the word. So her husband, Brother Hagin said, I looked back over my shoulder. Her husband reached down, scooped her up in his arms, carried her back to the, to the, the pew where they came from, sat her back down. At the end of the service, husband scooped her up in his arms, carried her out to the front door, carried her out to the car, took her home. It was the last night of the meeting. Brother Hagin had been there for several weeks and she had been in all the meetings. It was the last night of the meeting. She had waited till the very end. And so... Uh, they left. They went back home. No difference, no change in, in, uh, in her body whatsoever. She came back. Brother Hagin was back in that church about a year or 14 months later, something like that. And she came back walking in. And Brother Hagin, she, she asked him, she said, Brother Hagin, do you remember me? And he said, well, no, ma'am, I'm sorry, I don't. She said, I'm the lady whose husband had to scoop her up and carry her up here to, to sit on the front row for the healing line. Well, her husband's standing right there. She sees him, uh, Brother Hagin sees her walking. She's, you know, just standing there normal. So he gets excited. They, this big old guy, husband, starts patting Brother Hagin on the back, you know, knocking the wind out of him almost like this, you know. So excited, you know, because here it is. They can show him and, and all this kind of thing. So he says, well, tell me the story. Tell me how it happened. Last time I saw her, your husband was carrying you out to the car. Tell me what happened. She said, well, Brother Hagin, she said, honest to goodness, it didn't seem like anything happened. 
She said, but we had heard you teach on faith. We heard you say that you had to believe you receive it before you have it. So we went back home and every morning at breakfast, every day at noon, every night, whenever my husband and I were together, we'd sit at the table and we'd say, thank God by the stripes of Jesus I'm healed. She said, I did this for six months. She said, after six months, one morning, my husband came to pick me up and as he reached over to pick me up, I threw my legs off over to the side. She said, I didn't even realize what I was doing. He was shocked because she'd never been able to move like that for years. So he said, honey, well, you moved. She said, I did? She said, he said, yeah, you moved your legs. All of a sudden, she started moving her legs. She stood up. They danced all around the room. Brother Hagin said, what if she had given up after five months? Oh, but Pastor Mike, I don't want it to take six months for me. Okay. I'm sorry, I don't control the clock. I don't have anything to do with it. Why did it take six months? I don't know. Maybe it took those six months of them making the confession for it to really drop down on the inside of her. I don't know. But what if she'd given up after five? What if she'd given up after five months and three weeks? Folks, let me ask you a question. How far away is anybody from their answer when they do give up? That's the real question. What if it's just around the corner for them? That's why I won't give up. I've had some marvelous opportunities to give up in a number of ways, just like you have. And I refuse to give up. You know why? Because my answer is just around the corner. When the devil comes and tempts me the hardest to give up, that's what I say. You know, Mr. Devil, I would. I really feel like giving up. But you and I both know the answer is just around the corner. How does he answer that? Folks, we think so many times we're waiting on God and God's waiting on us. Let me tell you another story. Brother Hagin, uh, I've only heard him tell this story publicly one time, and that was at a, uh, a minister's conference in uh, Birmingham, Alabama at my brother's church. But he's told, he, he, I've heard him say this a couple of times in, in private settings. And, um, and he, he gave the people's names uh, in the private settings, not in the public setting. And, and, and so I think that's one reason that he didn't say too much about it because if you knew anything about the circumstance, You'd know who he was talking about, and, and he didn't want to bring uh, shame to anybody or, or uh, speak of him in a disrespectful way. But he said there was a meeting that he was holding for a certain pastor in a certain town, and, um, uh, and there were neighboring pastors that were both sick. Pastors in small towns not too far away, 10, 15 miles in either direction, maybe something like that. And he said one pastor had a wife who had become ill in such a way that he had to give up his church. He had to quit working. He had to, had to just do odd jobs and provide whatever money he could because he had to stay home and take care of his wife. And she was basically an invalid. She, had, uh, she was paralyzed. Both her arms and her legs were paralyzed. And, um, uh, and the, the circumstance was just such that she couldn't do anything uh, to, to get some institutional care or have nurse come in and stay with her during the day for him to continue to work full-time and things like that would have just been prohibitive as far as cost was concerned. So the, the husband just did what he could, did some odd jobs, and people in his town knew, and so they'd try to help out and things like that. But he had to give up his church, had to leave the ministry to take care of his wife. Now, the other pastor uh, in the town the other direction had been diagnosed with some kind of, um, uh, um, some kind of lung situation, lung respiratory is what I mean, some kind of respiratory situation. It wasn't critical. It wasn't like tuberculosis or anything like that. It was just a, a minor respiratory ailment or, or something like that, but it hindered him. And in, in uh, the rainy season and, and stuff like that, it kind of created a difficulty for him to breathe. It was similar to asthma, I guess, but, uh, but whatever. They had some kind of uh, medical name for it. Brother Hagin said that he came to this meeting and in this church that he was in, both of these pastors, uh, the one guy brought his wife, the other guy was there uh, just each and every service. Brother Hagin's healing ministry was pretty well known in that part of the country, and so people turned out for it, and these guys were included. And so, uh, anyway, he, um, he said, uh, I ministered healing. He said, uh, taught on healing, taught on faith in the morning, had healing services at night. He said, I knew both of these individuals by reputation because the pastor had told me about them, but I didn't know them personally. And he said, so I encouraged them. I talked to them uh, one of the early nights of the, the crusade or the seminar. And he said, I asked both of them, are you going to be here for the whole time? And the, the one that brought his wife said, oh, yeah, we, 
This is the most important place on the planet for us to be. Of course, we're going to be here all the time. And he said, well, then do this. Wait till the end of the, of the, the seminar. Get as much faith teaching in you as you can. And come at the last night. Come the last time. I'll give you plenty of notice. You'll know when it is. But come at the, the end of the seminar and have hands laid on you then rather than up front. And they said, well, sure, okay, we can do that. And he said the same thing to the other pastor. Well, the other pastor, since his wasn't as, as uh, critical, wasn't as important, he said, well, I don't know if I'm going to be here the whole time, but I'll be in and out. Yeah, okay, I'll wait till the end. But yet he was still pretty faithful. He missed some, Brother Hagin said, but he was pretty faithful. He said, now, on the last night of the seminar, the last night, he said, I ministered to the sick. He said, I laid hands on this lady, the, the pastor's wife. He said, I laid hands on, on the other guy. He said, I laid hands on this, this one lady. He said, it was like lightning bolts went out of me and into her. He said, I've never in my life had somebody that was so ready to receive. Never in my life had somebody so ready to receive. He said, it was like something just sucked power, healing power out of me and into her. He said, she was instantly healed. He said, the other guy, I had a stronger anointing to lay hands on him than I had the lady. He said, I had a stronger anointing and I laid hands on him and nothing happened. And he said, it created a stir in that whole town because what people took away from the services, not necessarily the people that were attending, but the people on the outside that were kind of looking in, people on the outside said, well, see, that proves that healing is not for everybody. And Brother Hagin said, I talked to both of them specifically afterwards to find out what the difference was. And he said, with the pastor, the one guy with the respiratory situation, he said, after I laid hands on him, I asked him, well, what happened? He said, well, I don't, nothing really. He said, I was looking for healing. And he was the second guy that he laid hands on. He had already laid hands on the lady, had a miraculous healing with that. So he would have expected that this guy would even be greater in faith. His faith would have been inspired and, and he's ready to receive. But he said, yeah, I didn't really feel anything, so I guess nothing really happened. And then he said this to Brother Hagin. He said, but someday, someday I believe the Lord's going to heal me. But with the lady, he asked her and her husband, what was the difference in you? What was your thought? What, what was your attitude when you came? She said, we had been confessing ever since we heard you the first morning teaching faith. We had been confessing. When Brother Hagin lays hands on me, I will be instantly healed. When Brother Hagin lays hands on me, I will be instantly healed. Folks, that sounds a lot like the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5. She said, before you laid hands on me, I said within myself, this is it. Now, let me tell you something about faith. Real Bible faith comes to the place where this is it. It's not going to be it later. This is it. When Jesus said to the fig tree, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter, he's saying this is it. To the tree, to the circumstance, to the hindrance, he's saying this is it. What's the other guy doing? The other guy's waiting, hoping for something to happen in the future. Folks, faith that keeps pushing off the results, pushing off the answer someday, somehow, some way, that's not real faith. One of the attributes, one of the characteristics of faith is, I believe it. It's mine now. That's what Mark eleven twenty four is all about. Yeah, but I don't see any results. That's okay. According to the Word of God, I believe it's mine now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the simple, simple truth of faith. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to believe your word. Because we believe in our hearts, we speak and say with our mouths. Let's make this confession together. According to the word of God, Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses. Therefore, with his stripes, I am healed. I declare before heaven and earth and hell, before the angels and any demons that may be present, I declare that I am healed according to the word of God from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. I refuse to let my words from this point forward contradict my declaration of faith. Healing is mine now in Jesus' name. No matter how I feel, no matter what I see, 
I am healed according to God's word in the name of Jesus. Now let's lift our hands and thank God because that's true. Thank you, Father, that it is true. We bless you, Lord. We magnify your holy name. We magnify your holy name. We magnify you, Lord. We worship you. It's so good to be healed, Father, no matter how we feel, no matter what we look like, no matter what the circumstances say, your word declares that healing is ours, and it's ours now. In Jesus' precious name. Can I tell you something by the Spirit of God? These are the words that I just heard on the inside of me. I heard the Holy Ghost saying, tell the people that I've given them a wonderful gift. You know what that gift is? That gift is the opportunity to stand in faith to see the results. We think from a natural standpoint, we think the greatest healings are the ones that come instantly. We think the greatest results are the spectacular ones that show up immediately. But you know the greatest healings? The greatest healings are the ones where you have the opportunity to stand in faith just because God's Word says so, not because of what you see, not because of what you feel, not because you see a change, but to stand upon God's Word and God's Word alone so that then when things change, you know that it was only God and your faith is developed so that now you can use faith in every area. That's the greatest way to go. And what I heard the Holy Ghost say is tell them that I've given them a wonderful gift the opportunity to stand in faith. So we've talked about what that means. That means from this point forward, for you to keep your heart true, to believe in your heart, in other words, is to say with your mouth, according to the Word of God, Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses, and I am healed. Yeah, but what if I hurt? Then declare it even more. What if the devil makes me, tries to make me think that it's not working? Then say, according to the word of God, I was healed by the stripes of Jesus. Don't let any word come out of your mouth contrary to what God's word says is already yours. And watch and see how your faith brings the results. You'll be one just like with Jesus talking to the woman with, with the issue of blood. He said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. I like how that reads in the original Greek. It literally says, the faith of thee has saved thee. The faith of thee has saved thee. I love that. Your faith can produce the same results. Let's thank him for his gift. Don't discount it. Don't say, well, that's not the way I wanted it, Pastor Mike. I was hoping you'd lay hands on people. I was hoping you'd just wave your hand and, you know, something miraculous would happen. Let's accept and realize and, and appreciate, respect the gift of the Lord. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the privilege that we have to stand in faith. Thank you for the privilege that we have to walk by faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please you. Oh, thank you, Father, that every time we make our confession, by the stripes of Jesus, we were healed. Every time we make that faith's confession, we'll be pleasing to you. We'll bring you joy. And oh, Lord, when it becomes so real to us that we begin to praise and worship you, when we begin to sing, it's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. I'm not waiting to be healed. It's so good to be healed now. When that joy comes bubbling up out of the inside of us because we believe your word to be more real than the circumstances that we experience. Oh, Father, then what, what wonderful, wonderful joy shall be had when the circumstance changes. I thank you, Father, that by simple faith, cancers disappear. I thank you, Father, that by simple faith, tumors wither and dry up from the root. I thank you that by simple faith, 
blind eyes open. I thank you by simple faith. Skin diseases disappear. I thank you, Father, that by simple faith, the lame walk. By simple faith, miracles occur. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Say it with me. Healing is mine now. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.